Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug and substance abuse, as well as domestic abuse. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Anna Wolin liked fun nights, especially ones kicked off at her boyfriend's farmhouse in the country. July 2nd, 1969 was no different. Like many other young people of the era, the 21-year-old Swedish model was surrounded by laughter, drinking, and marijuana use. But in one way, Wolin's circumstances were extremely unique. Her boyfriend wasn't just any old guy. He was Brian Jones, a founder of a little band called the Rolling Stones. At just 27, Jones was one of the most famous people on the planet. He was also in an extremely tumultuous period of his life. After being kicked out of the band he helped create, he'd gone deep into the substances phase of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was a Wednesday night, though. Jones anticipated simply spending some time with friends. It was a get-together that could hardly be characterized as a party at all. It was so low-key. Until, at some point in the late evening, a fight seemingly broke out by the pool. The argument was between Jones and his contractor, a man named Frank Thoroughgood. It seems to have been about money, but no one was quite sure. It was an odd thing to be occurring in the middle of what was supposed to be a fun evening. A short while later, Wolin ventured out back and found a terrifying scene. Her boyfriend floating face down in the pool, alone. Anna screamed and ran to the edge of the pool, but by the time the body was pulled out of the water, Brian Jones was dead. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode covering the death of Brian Jones, founder and former member of the Rolling Stones. More than 50 years after Jones was pulled out of the pool, his death continues to captivate people, mostly because of all the questions that remain about what really happened that evening. In this episode, we'll explore Joan's early years, along with the origin story of the Rolling Stones. We'll also break down the tension that existed between the bandmates from the very beginning and how hostilities reached a breaking point the year Jones died. Since then, a number of conspiracy theories around Jones's death have sprouted up. But today, we'll focus on two of the most persistent theories, both of which have gained legitimacy in recent years, as certain interviews and perspectives have come to light. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. From the earliest age, Brian Jones showed a creative edge and an interest in self-destruction. He would often combine the two and see explosive results. His parents tried to help Jones channel this energy, and so began his love affair with music. At six years old, he started piano lessons, playing songs from sheet music. Before long, he was moving off the page, finding his own melodies with an ease that shocked his parents. After the piano came the recorder. After the recorder came the clarinet and the saxophone, and then finally, the guitar. Jones' musical talent, combined with a natural intelligence and a wicked charm, allowed him to excel in school without much effort. His test scores were so high, he probably could have gone to almost any university he wanted. One of his headmasters referred to Jones as a, quote, intelligent rebel. But that devilish charm could only get Jones away with so much. He was disciplined twice at school for behavioral issues. He was even suspended. When his father sat Jones down to talk about these problems at school, the young boy said, quote, They're only teachers. They've never done anything. As if he knew he was destined for greatness. Towards the end of Jones' high school years, he became the center of an unimaginable scandal, especially for his small town at Cheltenham. He'd gotten a 14-year-old girl pregnant. Although the baby was ultimately put up for adoption, his reputation afterwards was under the microscope. For Jones, 
it seemed the perfect moment to drop out of school. Shying away from the academic path most of his peers were taking, Jones drifted for the next few years, and by 1962, he had moved to London. There, he became deeply immersed in the underworld of British blues, playing occasionally with a band called Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated. It was there he'd meet two other young musicians, ones who would change his life forever. One night in April 1962, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Dick Taylor walked to their favorite blues joint, the Ealing Club. They were childhood friends who'd grown up in the same small town and shared a love of music. All of them wanted a career in the industry, but none of them knew how to make their dreams a reality. When they stepped inside the club that night, a young man was on stage playing the slide guitar, a skill virtually unseen in West London. In one moment, Richards and Jagger were awestruck by Brian Jones. They'd never seen anyone play the guitar like he did, which was only bolstered by how confidently he carried himself on stage. When Jones finished his set, Jagger and Richards introduced themselves, and over the next few months, all the three young men could talk about was their shared passion for blues music. It soon became clear they all wanted to take their music to the next level, and they could do that together by starting a band. Jagger would be a lead singer, Dick would be on bass, and Richards and Jones would play guitar. To round them out, Jones held tryouts for a keyboardist and chose Ian Stewart. Mick Avery was on drums for a while as well, before exiting to join a band called The Kinks. Leading up to their first big gig that July, Jones named the band The Rolling Stones. The name was in honor of his idol, Muddy Waters, who'd written a song with almost the same title. It was a name they'd hoped would be unforgettable. A tall order, considering that, at this point, everyone in the band was broke. Jagger and Richards were both unemployed students at nearby universities. Jones wasn't much better off either, working at the civil service store and robbing from the cash register any chance he could get. Because he was helping finance the band, Jones' financial strain was considerable. He was desperate for a big break. And to compete with another English band, the Beatles, a group quickly becoming the most famous musical act in the country. In spite of the odds, everyone in the Stones knew they were on to something. No one doubted that Jones was something of a musical marvel. He drew crowds in adoration every time he walked on stage. In April 1963, about a year after they formed the band, the Stones finally got their break. Thanks to a publicist named Andrew Oldham and an agent named Eric Easton. While watching them perform in a small club, Oldham and Easton recognized their potential immediately. In their words, the Rolling Stones had, quote, blues roots, yes, but it was sex with a capital S. The rest, as they say, is history. The Stones signed a management contract and were off to the races. Notably, in that contract, Jones finagled a slightly higher paycheck than the rest of the bandmates. Soon, they released their first single and performed on the acclaimed Ed Sullivan Show. They were on the rise to stardom. At the same time, though, 
It was hard to deny another emotion was bubbling within the group, the tension between Jones and his bandmates. From the very beginning, Jones was frequently at odds with Jagger and Richards. Their disagreements often centered on important topics like creative control, but were also rooted in something much simpler. Jones wasn't easy to get along with. He might have been a musical genius, but he was also exhausting to work with, prone to jealousy and sporadic mood swings. The same enigmatic character traits that had once caused trouble in school were now sowing chaos between Jones and his fellow bandmates. To make matters worse, resentment in the band mounted in light of the increased attention on Jones and his higher salary. It didn't help that the Stones were in the midst of a grueling nightly schedule, performing on the ballroom circuit every night. Brutal as it was, the hard work finally paid off by the fall of 1964. The Stones had become a household name in the UK. With their new fame came new challenges, like the persistent negative attacks. Newspaper headlines focused on the Stones' alternative looks, like their shaggy hair and casual dress, which stood out from their more conservative peers. Not to mention the fact that young people loved their music while their parents hated it. Meanwhile, the creative dynamic inside the band was deteriorating. Recording sessions were marked by constant petty squabbles. Jones was increasingly aware of this tension and worried about what it indicated. He frequently asked his then-girlfriend, Linda Lawrence, if she thought the other bandmates liked him or not. We can only imagine her answer. To make matters more complicated, the Stones' manager, Andrew Oldham, soon encouraged Jagger and Richards to try their hand at songwriting, a suggestion that directly challenged Jones' position as the band leader. Plus, it nestled fear in his stomach that the band might move in a different musical direction than the blues he loved so much. Right as Jagger and Richards were gaining creative control, however, the Stones achieved a massive milestone. Their debut album had overtaken the Beatles' most recent album in advanced sales. They were officially in the big leagues. At concerts, the hype for the Stones was deafening. Young women threw themselves from balconies and fainted from the excitement. In response, the Stones fed off that energy they became wilder and more frenetic, and it showed in their music and performances. Ironically, Jones was conflicted about the reputation the Stones were cementing for themselves. Though he was a rebel himself, he worried their image as wild degenerates was eventually going to hurt them professionally. Then came another turning point. The Stones achieved their first simultaneous number one hit in the U.S. and the U.K., Satisfaction was one of several songs that had been penned by Richards and Jagger, and in many ways, it confirmed what had been stewing inside Jones for years now. The Stones were moving in an entirely different direction. It was working, and he was destined to become a second-rate player in his own band. Simply put, Jones spiraled, and quickly. He drank heavily, took LSD, and moved quickly through women, never holding on to any relationship for long. Before long, all of his choices began to manifest into professional consequences. 
Jones began to flounder in the very place he'd once felt so assured, on stage. Sometimes, he felt so much anxiety about performing next to Jagger and Richards, he refused to perform at all. Of course, each time this happened, the band was left in the lurch. They had to carry the show without him. It's easy to see how frustrated his bandmates might have been when this happened. The great irony of Joan's life was that he came across as the most reckless person in the band, the rebel who didn't care about what other people thought of him. And yet, in reality, he was a sensitive, insecure artist who felt increasingly isolated and unappreciated. To make matters worse was what occurred on May 10, 1967. That afternoon, police raided Jones' London flat and found a large amount of marijuana. He was formally charged. At the trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to nine months in prison. If he'd already feared his growing distance from the band, this was the nail in the coffin. Coming up, a party, a fight, and deadly discovery. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1967, Stone's founder, Brian Jones, was charged with possession of illegal substances and sentenced to nine months in prison. Though Jones eventually appealed the charge and was set free on probation, the experience rattled him deeply. His attitude never improved. By the spring of 1969, Jones was entirely on the outskirts. Sources close to the band say he would show up to the studio and record his own instrumentals in one corner, while Mick and Keith and the rest of the band practiced in another. Just a year prior, in 1968, Jones' London apartment was raided again. Police reportedly found weed wrapped up in a ball of blue wool, fueling rumors the drugs had been planted to frame Jones. After all, Jones wasn't a knitter. What would a ball of wool be doing in his apartment? That said, to anyone close to Jones or any of the Stones, the contraband itself wasn't a surprise. Heavy drinking and excessive drug use ran rampant throughout the band. Richards and Jagger, too, had their fair share of run-ins with the police and went through their own trial around the same time as Jones. Unfortunately, this shared trauma didn't unite the bandmates, Instead, it only created an atmosphere of blame and judgment, deepening the divide. While there were many reasons for the chasm, one in particular seemed to sever Jones from the group forever. Friends of his said that by 1969, he was still going through the biggest heartbreak of his life. His former girlfriend, actress Anita Pallenberg, had left him two years prior to date his bandmate, Keith Richards. As for the final straw between Jones and the Rolling Stones, it's hard to say, because everyone seems to have an opinion. 
Some say he was pushed out due to his erratic and self-destructive behavior. Others say he pushed himself out once he'd accepted that the love of his life left him for Richards. Regardless of perspective, the outcome was the same. By the summer of 1969, Jones was officially out of the band he'd created. The Rolling Stones were leaving him behind. So Brian Jones traveled to his property, Cotchford Farm, located in the countryside of Hartfield, East Sussex. The farm was a perfect escape from the city, far from the chaos and hurt he associated with London. Plus, there was no better time for a party than a summer night. So come July 2nd, 1969, Jones invited some friends over. Several people were with him that night, including a new girlfriend, Anna Wolin, a construction worker named Frank Thorogood, Stone's road manager, Tom Keylock, and a friend of theirs, Janet Lawson. Thorogood had recently been assigned to do some work on Cotchford Farm, and thus had spent a fair amount of time with Jones. According to Keylock, the house was filled with guests consuming edibles containing marijuana. People hung out inside the house stoned. Because of this, anecdotes from that night paint a fragmented and conflicting picture. Some say Jones was last seen in the pool with Thorogood. Another guest said they thought Jones had gone to bed. Well, perhaps both did happen. What we do know is that it seems like no one knew Jones was out by the pool alone until sometime around midnight. That's when Janet Lawson stepped outside and saw him floating in the pool and screamed for Anna Wolin. Immediately, they pulled his body out of the pool. Janet, who was also a trained nurse, tried to revive him, but it was too late. The first police officer came shortly after midnight Jones was eventually taken to a nearby hospital, where he was officially pronounced dead. A few days after that, his death was labeled a, quote, death by misadventure by local police, meaning simply that he drowned in the pool. At the time, two pieces of evidence contributed to this conclusion. First, Janet told police she had found an inhaler by the pool. Jones was an asthmatic, so understandably, he kept one nearby whenever he swam. Authorities thought maybe he'd had an asthma attack, but couldn't recover. Second, the toxicology report showed that Jones had drugs and alcohol in his system, stimulants and depressants that could affect his ability to respond to an asthma attack. Put together, it paints a pretty believable account of a drowning. It was a tragic end for a famously tortured artist. And those who read about it in the newspaper in the coming days might have thought it was a heartbreaking end to Joan's story. But for others close to the guitarist, this didn't quite add up. For one thing, the toxicology report said that there was the equivalent of three and a half pints of beer in Joan's system. While this might be enough to make someone drunk, friends pointed out it didn't seem like enough to cause someone with his tolerance to drown even when combined with marijuana or prescription drugs. But perhaps more importantly, the other blatant issue with the drowning theory is this. No one who was at Jones' house that night believed it. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Brian Jones didn't drown. He was killed by his contractor, 
Frank Thorogood. The first officer on the scene that night was PC Albert Evans. According to investigative journalist Scott Jones, when Evans arrived, he spoke with multiple people, all of whom said the last time they saw Jones alive, he was by the pool fighting with Frank Thorogood. It's unclear, however, how serious of a fight this was, or if there was even a fight at all. What is clear, though, is that Jones and Thorogood had plenty to quarrel about. As we mentioned earlier, Thorogood was technically a construction worker who had a contract to do work on the house. But earlier that day, he'd been fired by Jones. Afterwards, Thorogood allegedly believed he was owed an additional 6,000 pounds for the build, which would translate to around 105,000 pounds today. But it seems Jones didn't want to give Thorogood more money, and there's a chance he didn't have much money on hand at all. When he left the Rolling Stones, he agreed to a payout deal, but it hadn't been paid out yet. In other words, Jones at the time was strapped for cash. It's likely the police were aware of this, since there were alleged reports that Thorogood had been fighting with Jones. In spite of this, the police chose not to investigate Thorogood as a suspect. Days later, Jones' cause of death was officially declared to be death by misadventure, which indicated Jones was responsible for his own fate. And that was that. As far as the police were concerned, the case was closed. But the suspicion around Thorogood didn't end there. In fact, it only began to grow. First, there was a strange incident with Anna Wolin that took place days after Jones' death. While Wolin and the others have openly acknowledged they were on drugs the night of Jones' death, Wolin remained consistent in one detail. As the narrative around Jones' death publicly shifted to indicate he died at his own fault, his girlfriend was sure he didn't drown in the pool. Instead, she believed his death had something to do with Thorogood, and she was willing to speak to the press about it. But just before Wolin prepared to speak to a reporter, the Stone's management allegedly drove her to Heathrow Airport, put her on a plane to Sweden, and told her never to come back to London. Which seems suspicious. But while none of Joan's bandmates were present the night of his death, they did have an incentive to avoid a massive investigation. The Stones were set to embark on their biggest, most lucrative tour to date, with a series of concerts across the United States. If the police launched an investigation into Joan's death, it was possible the band members would have been required to stay in the country. They'd miss out on the publicity and the payday of a lifetime. Wolin's strange departure from London just a few days after Joan's death was certainly fishy, but it only got darker from there. There was another woman at the house the night of the event, someone the public didn't know about until much later. Her name was Joan Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons had been seeing Frank Thorogood romantically. It was a quiet affair, so we don't know much about it, but we do know she went to the party with Thorogood. And although she left early to help another guest home, she might have had a hunch about what was to come. Because at some point after Joan's death, Fitzsimmons told Sussex police she was afraid of Thorogood. 
as if his anger had reached a boiling point. She even spoke out in pubs, telling friends she didn't believe the death by misadventure lines. And apparently, she was ready to speak to the press. She didn't say Thurgood murdered him directly, but she did share her fear of him and told friends she was worried she knew too much about the Stones. A few weeks after Brian's death, Joan Fitzsimmons was found on Chichester Beach, alive but blinded, with a fractured skull and several teeth missing. She'd been severely attacked for reasons that were unclear, except, perhaps, for the fact she'd been at Joan's house the night he died. Coming up, the possibility of a police cover-up. Now back to the story. Despite the fact that Joan Fitzsimmons, the girlfriend of Frank Thorogood, was found brutally beaten on a beach in England after she indicated she feared Frank and his violent tendencies, he was never identified as her attacker. While ultimately a man named Michael Ziada, another boyfriend of Joan's, was found guilty of the attack, journalist Scott Jones thinks that Thorogood was responsible for both incidents. Joan's death and Fitzsimmons' vicious attack. Which introduces one final piece of evidence, Thorogood's deathbed confession. In 1993, Frank Thorogood was on his last legs. According to authors who've published books about Brian Jones, the former contractor spoke with Tom Keylock, the band's then road manager. Allegedly, Thorogood said, quote, It was me that did Brian. I just finally snapped. Which seems like a pretty convincing comment. But there is one more final twist in this theory, and that has to do with Mary Hallett, Joan's former housemaid. The possibility she was involved only emerged when a woman named Roxanne Fontana spoke about Jones for a documentary. Fontana, a former fan, said she was devastated when he died. So she went to the cottage on his farm years later, and it was there that she became friendly with Hallett. She was still working at Cotchford Farm alongside her husband, Les Hallett. Fontana continued to visit Roxanne afterwards from time to time. And when Roxanne passed away, Fontana visited the farm once again. And allegedly, as she was leaving the farm, Les Hallett ran after the car and said to her, quote, They drowned him in the trough. They drowned him in the trough. Fontana didn't know what Les meant at the time, though she later learned there was a trough in the garden that was filled with fresh water, back when Jones was living on the farm. Piecing everything together, Les was insinuating that Thorogood killed Jones by holding his head underwater in the trough, then taking his body to the pool where the death could be passed off as an accidental drowning. However far-fetched and random this may seem, there is one other piece of evidence that gives it more credibility for me. The autopsy report on Jones revealed fresh water in his lungs, which tracks with the theory that he drowned. And notably, There were no traces of the types of chemicals one might find in chlorinated water. Based on this report, it seems possible that the water in Joan's lungs came from an untreated water source, like the trough, rather than a treated water source, like the pool. 
Exactly. Then, Thorogood could have put the body in the pool, making it look like an accidental drowning. And while the contractor was never officially charged for a crime in relation to Joan's death, I am extremely compelled by the evidence backing this theory. It seems clear that everyone involved thought he had at least something to do with what happened in the pool that night. When you add in the Jones-Fitzsimmons connection and the alleged deathbed confession, it seems like too many connections to be a coincidence. So on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I give this theory a 9. I agree. It seems undeniable that Thorogood played some sort of role in the pool that night. But whether it was an intentional, cold-blooded murder or just an accident that went too far, I'm less sure. For one, the idea that he was drowned in the water trough came out far too late to make sense, over 50 years later. Why wouldn't Les Hallett have spoken up from the beginning? And if it happened by the pool, we don't know what condition Jones was in when Thorogood left the pool. It's possible they did get into a fight and Thorogood left the pool without checking to see if Jones was all right. Maybe he fell in. While Thorogood might have been negligible, so would, perhaps, everyone else at the party. A far cry from a cold-blooded murder. The bottom line is, there's no way of knowing. For that reason, I'm a little more skeptical. I give this theory a seven. When it comes to Joan's death, questions surrounding Frank Thorogood always seem to rise to the top of the list. But there's another conspiracy theory that seems to appear hand-in-hand with the speculation about Thorogood's role, and that has to do with the investigators themselves. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The police covered up evidence and intentionally bungled the investigation into Brian Jones' death. As we mentioned earlier, PC Albert Evans was the first person on the scene that night. Hours later, his superior, Detective Chief Inspector Bob Marshall, arrived, and PC Evans relayed the information that had been shared with him from multiple witnesses, that earlier that night, Thurgood and Jones were fighting. Yet what Chief Inspector Marshall said next was shocking. According to journalist Scott Jones, Marshall told Evans, quote, that will be the last we hear of that, as if witness testimony didn't matter. But that's not the only account we have that seems to suggest evidence of a cover-up. Tom Keylock, the same man who reportedly heard Thorogood's deathbed confession, had a brother, Frank Keylock, who worked in the criminal investigation department. Via his brother's inside connections, Tom said, quote, I think the police wanted to make a manslaughter charge, but they were told to forget it. The orders came from the very top not to pursue it anymore, and it never was pursued after that. Which opens up the incredible question of why police would want to cover up details around Joan's death. At its core, a lot of this theory boils down to the tense relationship between Jones, Jagger, other rock stars of the time, and British police. Remember, while Jones was alive, he was the subject of not one, but two police raids. And there were many other conspiracy theories stating the drugs police found in Jones' apartment were planted by the police themselves. Plus, 
we know it wasn't just Jones who was persona non grata with the police. His bandmates, Jagger and Richards, had also been subject to drug raids, along with other members of popular bands at the time, like the Beatles. It was as if the cops wanted to use their scene to prove a point. In the late 1960s, bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were believed to be responsible for a new cultural wave of immoral behavior that normalized drug use and sexual promiscuity. And in some ways, that was true. Rock and roll was inspiring an entire generation of young people to see and engage with the world in new ways. But many government officials and leaders thought this movement was far more sinister. They even accused bands like the Stones of being satanic and of casting young adults under some sort of spell. The atmosphere the Stones inspired at concerts terrified the older and more conservative generations in charge. It was easy for those people to blame this new, rebellious cultural attitude on someone like Brian Jones, a troubled and highly visible rock star. And when the police arrived at Cotchford Farm and found Jones dead, one can imagine how compelling it would be for the authorities to frame Jones' death as a cautionary tale for young people everywhere, a reminder for them to stay in line or reap the consequences of a reckless life. For those who were close to Jones, his death and the poorly handled investigation that followed was proof the police had always been out to get him. There was the marijuana and the ball of wool and the second raid, and now there was this, a blanket refusal by the authorities to investigate Jones' death with any energy whatsoever. In 2009, 40 years after Jones was found floating in his pool, the police briefly reopened the investigation into his death, then quickly closed it once more, this time for good. It's clear there were errors in the police investigation, but whether those errors are a sign of an intentional, orchestrated campaign to take down the Rolling Stones, that's less clear to me. That's true. We know it was handled by the local police, which may have had less resources to handle the case. And after all, if the police wanted to bring down the Stones, I think realistically, they would have just investigated Jones' death and kept the rest of the band from going on tour in the U.S. While I do believe Thorogood might have been involved in Jones' death, I'm not so sure there's much proof for a coordinated cover-up by the cops. For that reason, I give this conspiracy theory a five. I agree. I do find it interesting that these bands were at such odds with the police and with government powers in the U.K., it also is interesting there was speculation of drug plants before Jones' death. At the end of the day, though, the role of police is to investigate crime to their best ability without bias. We know that certainly doesn't always happen. It's believable to me that the police didn't investigate Thorogood, a very compelling suspect, with any real intention, given how many people mentioned his fight with Jones. So I'm going to give this conspiracy theory a seven. As many people know, Jones' death didn't slow the upward trajectory of the Rolling Stones. It's hard to think of many other bands who have been more successful or reached a higher level of fame than the Stones. 
And in many ways, that is the true tragedy of Brian Jones' life. That he, the eager and supremely talented musician, the blues purist who fought so hard for the Stones to succeed, is now a footnote in their musical history. There is one silver lining, however. As more details come to light about his death, like Thorogood's alleged confession, fans of Jones might feel like they have closure. And if the theories are true, and Brian Jones didn't die by misadventure, that might even feel like an exoneration. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Among the many sources we used, we found Laura Jackson's Brian Jones and the documentary Rolling Stone, Life and Death of Brian Jones, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories is written by Caroline Burke, edited by Stacey Nemec and Mackenzie Moore, Fact-checked by Adriana Romero, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 